We're in Mark chapter 6 this morning, where Jesus is going to go back to his small town, the small town of Nazareth. Small towns have an interesting dynamic around them. I graduated with 87 people, so I got to play every sport I wanted to. It was great. There weren't very many, wasn't much competition. It was a small town. And small towns have interesting dynamics. And much of this is remembered in the songs that you hear about small towns. So John Mellencamp was born in a small town, <laughs> lives in a small town, and he'll probably die in a small town. See, you guys know. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going where? Anywhere but the small town, <laughs> right? There's a band called Blackberry Smoke. I cannot endorse all their music, so careful. But they sing a song called One Horse Town that tells a story of, of young men who with a little bit of luck and a lot of work, you can end up right where your daddy was. He says, this little bitty town, it ain't nothing new. We all stick around because they all tell us to. Swallow your pride just to make your family proud. If I didn't think that it would shut the whole place down, I'd ride my pony right out of this one horse town. But they tap into these realities of small towns that almost look on suspicion with those who want to go and make a name for themselves. There's resistance to those who want to go out and expand and grow and seize opportunities. I did not have this in my small town, but some people do. This idea that you'll never amount to anything outside of this small town. It's a toxic mentality. It comes up in small towns. And I think about that reality when I read about Jesus going back to Nazareth. His first visit there was about a year prior to this in Luke chapter four, where he, he reads, Isaiah says, this is fulfilled in your hearing and they try to kill him. So it's kind of Jesus to go back. But Mark is filling our eyes with these words and the works of Jesus. And he's been emphasizing the necessity of faith. One must come to Jesus and entrust him with their lives. Trust that he's the savior, he's powerful over creation, he's powerful over demons, he's powerful over sickness, he's powerful over death. And so since I referenced journey earlier, Mark's theme recently could be don't stop believing. <laughs> In John four, which was right around the same time, you have a Samaritan woman and a royal Gentile official that believed the first time that Jesus was rejected at Nazareth. And he's contrasting his small town with people that are believing in him. The demoniac believed in Jesus. The hemorrhaging woman believed in Jesus. Jairus believed in Jesus. And now he's headed to his hometown. Will Nazareth believe? And in this change of location, there's a bit of a change in the tenor of the story. Crowds are usually amazed by Jesus. And now Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. Jesus has been displaying lordship over nature and demons and sickness and death. And now he's faced with misunderstanding, rejection, and inability to do mighty works. So he's headed to his hometown, Nazareth. This is a small, obscure settlement full of earthen dwellings embedded in about 60 acres of a rocky hillside. And most people said maybe around 500 people lived there give or take. So let's look at Mark 6, 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. 
And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake the dust off that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. We're seeing here Isaiah 53, 3 fulfilled that Jesus is despised by men. He's rejected. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And it's without honor, even in his own hometown. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is rejected. Jesus is rejected. And verse two, we see that his teaching is the first thing they reject. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given by him? What's he doing? In verse two, he's teaching them in the synagogue. Now, for Jesus to come to the synagogue and teach meant that he was entering a crowded field. Many Jews, the Jews had many respected teachers that were highly acclaimed. So for them to say, like, this guy's set apart, Jesus is set apart, is to say there's something good in what Jesus is teaching. There's something amazing. He's teaching as one with authority, as it would say, somewhere else. But typically, those Jewish teachers would teach under a rabbi for a time. Then they would swear their allegiance to the Torah, the law of the Jews, and then they would go and teach. And if they hadn't had that time with a rabbi and they hadn't had this official aligning with the Torah, people would question them and think, you're kind of just a commoner. Like you really don't have the, the pedigree that you're supposed to have. And here's Jesus teaching in a very compelling way, but without a lot of what would normally be the accolades. Not only that, he's at times, we don't know exactly what he's saying here, but is that at times he's claiming the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures in himself and helping us understand them rightly. And so Jesus teaching with authority, these biblical simple words, I'm sure that people when they heard this was one of those light bulb moments typically when Jesus was teaching, like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Or that's what that means. And, and yet Jesus is teaching to them, and instead of evaluating his teaching, the truthfulness of his teaching, examining his words, seeking to understand, first receiving, right, before they criticize or critique, they ask questions which reveal their doubt. They say, where did he get this wisdom? So they first reject his teaching. They don't receive it and analyze it. They just reject it. But then they reject his works. Where did this man get these things? It says in verse two here, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So instead of Jesus 
seeing what Jesus was doing, the power that he was displaying, the kingdom he's ushering in, they take issue with the fact that Jesus is doing them. They don't discredit the works. They're surprised it's Jesus doing them. I mean, why would you object to the works that he's doing? He's healing the sick. He's restoring the lame. He's giving sight to the blind. He's raising the dead. These things aren't, you don't get upset about that stuff. You shouldn't anyway. Or why would those things bother them? Well, it's because it's Jesus doing them. And they don't believe in the man, so they have issues with his works. They reject his works. They reject his teaching. And this is really rooted in, as we'll see, a rejection of the man himself, his person. So look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. My girls are studying fallacies in school right now, which is unfortunate. Because they're calling out my arguments. But that's okay. When I, I sometimes say, well, because I said so right? Like you got to do it because I said to. And they'll say, that's an appeal to authority fallacy, dad. You can't just appeal to authority. (laughs) To which I'll respond, but I really am the authority here. So (laughs) we have some fun with it. But the hearers are doing what we call the ad hominem fallacy. It's probably the most common fallacy you hear, especially in, in an election year. It's the attacking the man instead of the argument. It's so popular, sadly. So they hear his teaching, and it's compelling. It's insightful. It's authoritative. They see his works, wonderful things, and they attack the man. It's not this the carpenter. It's a broad category, carpenter, for one who produces things with their hands, wood and likely stone, probably likely stone. If you've been to the promised land, I've not. There's a lot more stone than wood. But Jesus is a man who worked with his hands, which kudos to all who work with their hands. There's no shame there. He made heaven, he made earth, and he worked with his hands with the stuff he created. But the the townspeople just can't imagine. That's a carpenter now teaching us, doing these mighty works. They just attacked the man. This is just the son of Mary, they said. Jews would normally refer to someone as the son of their father. And so this is a question attacking the legitimacy of Joseph and his fatherhood, which then attacked the morality of Mary, casting a stigma on her. And then he says, all his brothers and sisters are right here. He's just a guy with siblings. How can he do these things? And they took offense at him. The presence of Jesus, his very ministry was a stumbling block to his hometown. And it says they stumbled over him and he, they, they, he marveled at them because of their unbelief, but they were stumbling over him. So the stumbling is this idea that they, they take, I'm sorry, verse three, I got lost here for a second. They took offense at him. Is the same word you hear other places where people stumble at him. As Peter said, who was teaching Mark likely and influencing Mark, Peter quotes In the Old Testament, it stands in Scripture, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
So here is Jesus, his works on display, his teaching in their ears. They're to build their lives upon the man, but instead they just trip over him. They take offense at him. And the question comes up, why? And in verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus takes a fairly common saying, but he personalizes it here. And he says, there's kind of gives it three concentric circles. A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And his brothers don't believe in him yet. His family's already come to him in the past saying, I think he's lost his mind. And now the whole town's rejecting him. And it reminds me of an old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, these folks had 30 years with the man. What a blessing. Wouldn't, don't, parents, don't you want your kids to have Jesus as their friend? <laughs> like, go hang out with Jesus. You always come back better. You seem to have a glow about you, you know? But they, have, they had him for 30 years and they didn't value him. I see parallels in our world today. The great benefits people have received from Christianity but their unwillingness to acknowledge the Savior who gave us those benefits. They don't give honor where it's due. And it points out that exposure is no guarantee of faith. Just exposing yourself to Jesus, just being around his people, even just hearing his word is no guarantee of faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse five, Mark really keeps the humanity of Jesus in front of us, doesn't he? Look at verse five. He could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. Jesus could do no mighty work there. In his humanity, he was limited. Why? Because of the people's unbelief. Like the woman with the hemorrhage, Jesus wasn't satisfied to just issue a miracle in his hometown and move on. He wants to engage people. How can you can just issue it? Why would Jesus just issue miracles for people that don't believe in him and don't want to know him and follow him? His power comes to us in and through faith. And so where the kingdom of Jesus is rejected and where Jesus is rejected, it makes no sense for the king to extend life and joy. That the goodness of Jesus Christ, the benefits of Jesus Christ, the blessings of Jesus Christ all come to us through faith in him. And it, that's why he warns such about unbelief. It raises our attention to the awful nature of unbelief. It's the oldest sin in the world. Adam and Eve failed to believe our Lord's words and brought death into the world. It kept Israel out of the promised land for 40 years. It's subtle. It's there all the time. We have to pray for faith and ask God to increase our faith. I think daily we cry out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We watch for Jesus and we watch out for unbelief. And someday when Jesus returns, our faith will be turned to sight. But until then, we labor to believe. It, it's the only thing that Jesus marvels at. It's so unreasonable a sin that Jesus is genuinely astounded by it. They're seeing the Son of God in the flesh, his words, his works, 
and they're rejecting him. Jesus is blown away at the sin of unbelief. It's like he's just too local for their liking. He's just too ordinary. God's not gonna do great works through Jesus, his hometown said. It's just a carpenter. His family's still around here. He's just a local kid back to visit us. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Everybody knows that. We're just a one-horse town. We don't even have a Dairy Queen. How could Jesus come from us? Right? It's a mark of, a symbol of status is to have a Dairy Queen in your small town. The sinless son of God came in the flesh to bring us to God, to show us God, to die for our sin, to conquer death, to give us abundant life, free from the devil's snare, to see Jesus and not believe makes Jesus marvel. So what did Jesus do? In verse six, he went about the villages teaching. He moved on. When he's not received, he'll move on to those who will receive him. And in Matthew 9, we get an interesting insight into what happens in this time. It's when Jesus sees large crowds, says he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, if that doesn't tell you that Jesus wants relationship with you, I don't know what does. He's the Lord of the harvest. So he's telling his disciples, hey, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He's saying, ask me to send you into the harvest. It'll be a lot easier for Jesus just to do it. But he, he draws people in before he sends them out. And he's rejected here in Nazareth. And then he's telling his disciples, hey, G disciples, ask the Lord to raise up workers. The harvest is plentiful. And now he's about to send them out themselves, but he doesn't do so without first calling them to himself. So it's a very transitional moment. Look at verse one. Look at the posture of his disciples. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And look at verse seven. He called the 12 and began to send them. So there's a transition going on here where Jesus is now, though Jesus was rejected, Jesus still advances. He still advances. In verse seven, we see what he does first is that he calls the 12 to himself. This is the model for every disciple called to Jesus, sent out by Jesus. Come to Jesus for empowerment, encouragement, strength, restoration, sent out by Jesus. And he doesn't dispatch his people from afar. Jesus isn't giving marching orders from a distance. He's not the general at the top of the hill signaling troops from the security of a lofty place. He's among his people, delights to be there with them, calls them to himself, and then sends them out. But not before he empowers them. Look at verse seven. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So Jesus, in order to advance, he calls people to himself his disciples, and he empowers them. He gives them authority. The 12 are gonna continue doing the work that Jesus was doing. It's not a different work. It's a continuation of his ministry and his work and his advancement of the gospel. But now it's through his people. And this is where we start to see this idea of an apostle. 
It's the one who is sent. And they went in the name of Jesus with the authority of Jesus. And if they rejected the disciples, they were rejecting Jesus. And if they received the disciples, they were receiving Jesus himself. So they were to go, reflect the character of Jesus, reflect the, the, the gospel that Jesus has presented, the message of the kingdom that Jesus has sent them in. And they were shared, shared in the very power of Jesus, power over demons, unclean spirits. And they would go on to use that power. But not alone. So he, he gives them authority and he sends them out. But first he pairs them up. He pairs them up. What a gift it is to have people alongside you. I was once with my dad dropping off some furniture to a family in need in Kentucky. And we got the, got the furniture in and moved it into their house for them. And we were talking outside a little bit. And an opportunity came up to open up about the love of Christ with these, these people and, and just walked right through that door. And it I just told them about Jesus and how much he loves them and how this furniture ministry is an extension of the love of Christ. And, and I got back into the truck afterwards and I said, dad, that was so much easier with you here. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, it's, it's no wonder that Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs. And I said, that's amen, right? And you see God's wisdom in giving the church a plurality of elders. You hear this wisdom throughout all of the Old Testament. Two are better than one. They have a good reward for their toil. Ecclesiastes 4 says, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who falls and doesn't have another to lift him up. It's so good to have partnership and friendship in discipleship and in the mission of Jesus Christ. We need the accountability and the confidence that comes from other believers just being alongside us. It helps in sound judgment. It, it gives endurance amidst difficulties. There's a book on friendship that says friendship shares your burdens and doubles your joys. And that's exactly what it does when you have someone alongside you. you. It halves your burdens, it doubles your joys. It's a call to work together, to strive for unity and partnership, to sharpen one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. We need each other. Deuteronomy 32, 30 and 31 is a verse I've reflected on often. Uh, as we think about the work here at FRAC. It says this, Moses is reminding the Israelites of God's past faithfulness and they're, they're about to head into the promised land. And he says, how could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. So how can one... One puts a thousand to flight. We have a lot of accountants in here. One puts a thousand to flight. Two puts 10,000 to flight. So this doesn't add up typically, right? But this is what the point is, is that the Lord is sending us out with his authority, with his power. One chases a thousand, two chases 10,000. Our enemies that are that we're called to love in the new covenant. They don't have God. They don't have the same authority we have. When Jesus sends us out, we are not alone and we need one another. So the Lord calls these disciples to himself. He empowers them. He pairs them up, gives them his authority, and then sends them, sends them out. 
And I can imagine the disciples saying, what do we bring, Jesus? What do we bring? What are we supposed to pack? It's surprising how little Jesus tells them to take. Just have the bare essentials. Look at, look at the verse here. Uh, let's see, verse eight. Take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. They go with full dependency on the Lord to seek the advancement of the gospel, not themselves. They're freed from baggage as they're enabled to greater serve the Lord and exist in greater dependence upon the Lord. James Edwards said this, true service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends despite material shortfalls and despite unanswered questions. And you know they were wrestling with this. Material shortfalls, unanswered questions, but they went in dependence on Jesus. But there's an interesting thing that Mark does here. He's stirring us up to remember what God did through the Israelites at the Exodus because he quotes the exact same things the Israelites were told to take with them when they were being delivered up from Egypt. So remember they were under Egyptian slavery and the Lord through Moses was exposing Pharaoh's weakness. All the plagues were coming on. Eventually the final plague was gonna hit and then God was gonna deliver up his people. And he says in Exodus 12, 11, that they're gonna eat the Passover meal as the angel of death passed over the Israelites and then they were gonna be free to leave and go and they were gonna plunder the Egyptians as they went. And he says, eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you should eat it in haste. And God then delivered them up from Egyptian slavery. Jesus is sending the 12 out with the same sense of urgency, the same sense of expectation that the Israelites should have had at the Exodus. They need to, be go, they need to go freed from the Lord, to just freed from the worries of this world to serve the Lord and usher in this new work of salvation that Jesus is doing, just proclaiming the kingdom. So what do we have? What do we take, Jesus? Well, not much, not much, but, but, but trust me. So then they're gonna go and I'm sure they're gonna say what we would all say if we're traveling. Well, where do we stay? Where are we gonna stay? Look at verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet. So they, they were sent to trust the Lord with their basic needs, but also to trust the Lord with where they're gonna stay. If they receive you, stay there. Don't bounce around needlessly. Don't look for a better house. Go, stay, be faithful, be steady. It's genuinely a call for peaceful ministry. In parallel accounts, he mentions, if a house of peace accepts you, stay in that house. Every ministry longs for seasons of peaceful ministry. Jesus encourages the disciples to avoid needless disruptions, needless interruptions. Don't look for the richer house to stay at. Don't look for someone you get along with better. If a house receives you, stay there, do the work of the kingdom. 
Well, what do we do, Jesus? I'm sure they said, what do we do? Well, give the message of the kingdom, a call to repentance. Same thing Jesus has been saying throughout his ministry. Turn from your sin to Jesus. And they would go in and cast out demons. They would heal as the power of Jesus worked in and through them. In other words, go to the towns and do what Jesus has been doing. The 12 are gonna continue the work of Jesus Christ. Christ in them, through them, forms them in him in themselves, and then others through those efforts of the disciples into his own image. Well, I'm sure then the disciples may have said, well, what if we're rejected? What if they don't take us? And it's interesting that Jesus sends them out right after he's what? Rejected in his hometown. So they know they're not gonna be received everywhere they go and they need to be prepared for it. Now is it practice, an expected practice for Jews to after going on a journey, when they were entering back into the promised land, they were to dust off their feet. They were to cleanse their feet so they wouldn't pollute the Holy Land with contaminants from Gentile territories. It's very serious. So when Jesus reshapes the way they are to treat towns that would have been inside of Israel's promised land, it's radically transforming how they are to think about the people of God. If a Jewish village denied the gospel of Jesus, the disciples were to dust off their feet and declare that place a heathen place rather than the holy land. The kingdom of God advances where people repent and believe. It's not based on, Gentile, on territories or ethnicity. It's based on those who receive Jesus Christ. And so if they, they receive you, this is the kingdom. If they don't receive Jesus, shake off your feet, dust it off and move on. This is not the kingdom. So they saw Jesus rejected, his preaching, his works, and his person. And now they see Jesus advance. He calls them, he equips them, he sends them. And then the disciples are sent out. I mean, just imagine carrying so little. A staff, not, not two tunics, just one tunic. No bread. Okay, Jesus. So they're on their way, but the power of Jesus is resting upon them. And they're going in and they're calling people to repent, to turn to Jesus from sin. And repentance, I think, is easily misunderstood. It's, this is not a morbid, excessively sorrow call that immobilizes you or paralyzes you and keeps you from Jesus. It's meant to be a turn from sin to Jesus who paid the punishment for your sin and receives you warmly. I think sometimes we try to beat ourselves up in repentance so that Jesus will accept us. He paid it all. Don't try to beat yourself up enough. Jesus was beaten for you. But repentance is the theme of the disciples. It's the theme of Jesus's ministry. It's his first words when he comes in and begins preaching. And so when you, you turn from sin to Jesus, he receives you, he forgives you of your sin. And even if you're mourning over it and you're in a low place, turn to Christ and live over and over again. Repent and repent again because it's returning you to the restorative, joyful, loving presence of the living God. And so his disciples went out and they proclaimed to repent. They're declaring the Lord's power. They're 
casting out demons. They're healing the sick. They're continuing the ministry of Jesus. I, I just wonder if the 12 were really ready by my standards. God so delights to carry out his purposes through people that, are, that seem ill-prepared. I mean, if you think about what we've seen just in the Gospel of Mark, they've slowed him down at times. When he was ready to go on, they're like, Jesus, there's a bunch of, you need to come. There's a lot of people here. He says, I, I have to go on and preach to other cities. They've been angry with him. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus, you're surrounded by people and you're asking us who touched you? You're in a crowd. They've asked more questions than they've had answers. I mean, are these really the guys trusted that we want Jesus to send out? And the reality is, no matter how much theology, exegesis, counseling, training, no matter how much study has occurred, man, we're never really fully ready. Ready. To serve our Lord is to recognize how much we need Him, how much our inadequacies are, and to find our adequacy in Jesus himself, his power to work and save, his power in and through us. We, we embrace Christ, we serve him, and we serve him come what may, knowing that our all sufficiency is in him. And just like these disciples went with so little, we go and we trust him as we go. What if we encounter rejection? So did Jesus. You share in the sufferings of Christ. We labor with the strength he provides. We learn together. We show each other. We're two by two. And we labor with the power that he works in us. And all the while, probably just like these disciples, we wonder if we are going to make it. We wonder if he's going to provide for us. But we believe that he called us, he equips us, he's with us. His purposes will stand so we're free to step into that awkward conversation with your neighbor, with your coworker. The Lord is with you. His authority is in you by the power of the Spirit. If you feel unprepared, take heart that you have a fuller, more rich understanding of the gospel and the word of God than these disciples did in their time because you have the full and complete revealed word of the living God. Jesus views you graciously. He celebrates them when they come back. You mess it up. You say something you didn't mean to. You forget an important piece. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He sent out this ragtag band and the gospel's still advancing today. When we go with our imperfections, when we go in dependence on Jesus, we tell people, hey, look, Knowing Jesus is infinitely more important than being perfect, than our being perfect. Knowing him is far more important than having all things figured out. I want you to know Jesus Christ. We were just talking about this in the Sunday school class on gender. Some of these discussions are hard and it's okay in the middle of it to say, I don't really know exactly what to say, but I want to be your friend and I want to walk with you through this and hopefully open doors for further conversations about the gospel. When you do that, you're showing that your desire for them to know Jesus is more important than you being right in the moment or you having every single answer. We're not perfect. We don't have it all figured out, but we have Jesus and he sends us out together and he empowers us 
and he equips us. And he was rejected, and so too might we be rejected, but his kingdom advanced. And so too will we see his kingdom advance when we go in his power, in his confidence, confident in him, not ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are perfect in every way and that you have chosen to work through clay pots, vessels like us. We thank you that you've made us vessels for honorable use and we pray that you will bring glory and honor to your name through us as a church. Jesus, give us endurance and grace as we strive to love you and help others see your glory, see your goodness, see your kingdom. Lord, sustain us with your love. May we come to you and be enriched and encouraged by you. May our hearts be restored and then may you send us out with the power of the Spirit within each of us to take your kingdom out right here in Colorado Springs and to the ends of the earth through our missionaries, Lord. We want to see your glory abound to the ends of the earth as the waters cover the seas and we know that it eventually will. So give us confidence in you as we participate in your mission, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.